The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Now, we are aware from Scripture that we have a personal enemy who seeks our very lives. His name is the devil or Satan, that ancient dragon. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the Scripture also reveals we have an impersonal enemy as well, one that surrounds us at every moment and that threatens our souls as well. In 1 John chapter 2, it's called the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and this desire pass away. The man who does the will of God stands forever. And so we're surrounded by the world. And by that, John means, I think, the world system. Not the created world that God made and all of its beauty. But the world system, that alluring, powerful, enticing, wicked culture that attacks our very souls and seeks our eternal destruction. Now, the world is made up of living, breathing people whose minds are controlled by the flesh and by the spirit of the power of the air, Satan. So these people, as they live out their convictions, as they live out their worldviews, they craft a, a world around us that is enticing and alluring away from the things of God, away from Christ. Some of them have political and military ambitions to rule and dominate. Perhaps a non-Christian politician running for office or an Al-Qaeda terrorist masterminding the next terrorist attack somewhere in the world. Or the publisher of a pornographic magazine or an actress willing to do anything in a movie to further her career. Could be a marketing consultant urging a bolder approach to marketing clothing to teens in malls. Or a financial expert writing a column on how you can be far richer than you ever dreamed if you just follow his approach of investments. Or a motivational speaker telling spellbound audiences ten irrefutable laws for success the way he defines it. And a hundred, even a thousand other enticements pulling you away from Christ. That's the world. It's a seething culture of unbelief pulsating with the lusts that John mentions. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh pride of life. It is vicious, it's relentless, it's alluring, enticing, it's a cold-hearted enemy to your soul. It would have you. It would pull you away from Christ. And it has a symbolic name in the Bible, and that name is Babylon. Now, I know that Babylon was a city in ancient Mesopotamia. On the Euphrates River, from it arose a mighty empire for a time that dominated the world. From that empire came an army that conquered Jerusalem, tore down its walls, and burned the temple of God. I'm aware of all that. It was the enemy of the people of God at that time, Babylon. Isaiah 13 clearly predicts the fall of that literal city of Babylon 
to the Medes in 536 B.C. That's predicted here in this chapter. But Isaiah 13 uses language that soars far above that one event in history. It speaks of God's wrath poured out on all nations to the point where you can't even see the celestial beings anymore. The sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened. It's language that goes right to the end of time. Isaiah 13 speaks of God's relentless wrath poured out on Babylon, the enemy of his people, and it's fulfilled again and again and again in history. Not just in one date, one time, 536 B.C., but again and again. Because from the, from the smoldering ashes of one destroyed Babylon rises the next Babylon. Like a wicked phoenix from the ashes, up it comes to defy God and to attack God's people. It happens again and again, and God is always against it. He controls that rise, he fights against it and throws it back down, and then the next Babylon comes along. And so it is. And not until the end of the world will the final Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, and Babylon itself be crushed forever. It says in Revelation 17, it depicts Babylon as a harlot riding on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And so you have pleasure plus power. That equals the world to me. That's what it is. And there's going to be a final form of Babylon and it will be crushed forever by the glorious second coming of Christ. And no more Babylon, friends. No more worlds the way John means in 1 John 2. We'll be free forever. And we will live in a pure world where Jesus will reign and there will be no enticements away from God, only powerful inducements to Him to worship Him and love Him forever. God is going to crush Babylon and that's exactly what He's talking about in this very serious and sober chapter. It's not an easy chapter to read. It's not pleasant. But yet it is joyful for us as the people of God to know that our enemy is God's enemy too. And that He will rise up and crush it someday. Now, as we enter a new section of Isaiah's prophecies, uh, Isaiah 13 through 23, these are oracles against the nations, but 11 chapters or so of oracles against the nations, one after the other. And Isaiah, in these chapters, is really throughout the whole book, portrays a God who sits on his throne and rules over the events of history 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is working all the time to bring about his plan, for it says, right in this oracle section, Isaiah 14, 26 and 27, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? God is in charge. And this is a powerfully vital message for our time. When we're barraged by a constant stream of news stories that can discourage you as a Christian beat you down, reading CNN or looking at CNN or going to websites or looking at Fox News or one thing after another, constant stream of stories that give you the sense that the world is spinning out of control. Well, it isn't. The message of these oracles, 11 chapters of them, is our God reigns. And the message of this first one is that God is against Babylon in any of its forms and he will destroy it in the end. And so we see God's sovereign rule over the nations. We begin with this oracle against Babylon. We're going to go from that to oracles against the Philistines in chapter 14, Moab in chapters 15 and 16. We're going to look at oracles against Syria and Ephraim in chapters 17 and 18, Egypt in chapters 19 and 20, back to Babylon again in chapter 21, 
Edom and Arabia also in chapter 21, and finally Tyre in chapter 23, the oracles against the nations. And in all of this, God's going to give clear messages to his people. That's us and them. And the message is, first of all, do not trust in the strength or be allured or enticed by the strength of the nations and the peoples you see around you. Do not put your trust in them. Do not make alliances with them. Don't put your hope on them. They are just nations. They are as a drop from the bucket. And they will be swept away in the end. And also the, the insights here again and again is there's no righteous nation on earth as we understand a political entity. God's wrath is against all of them. Every one of them. For he says very plainly in Isaiah 34 verse 2, The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is against all their armies. That's something good for us to consider, isn't it, in this day? He's against them all. Friends, our citizenship's in heaven. That's the message of the oracles of these nations. Also, do not question God's justice. When for a short period of time, a godless people seems to be dominant and ascendant. He's seen it again. We will see it again and again. God reigns even then. He is not unjust and God cannot be mocked. And judgment day, the day of the Lord mentioned here, will come to them. And so for us, as the people of God, trust in Him. Fear God and keep His commandments. Walk in His ways. Pray for the advance of His kingdom. That's what I get out of the oracles of the nations. Now, that's a general introduction to the new section in Isaiah we're coming to. But let's look specifically here at Isaiah's far-reaching vision when he talks about Babylon. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Now, many modern scholars seriously question whether Isaiah wrote these chapters. I just love it. I don't. I hate it. But I just read it, and, and I just wonder how they come up with these things. But what they say is, at the time that Isaiah wrote, 725 B.C., Babylon was really nothing, just a minor city with some people around it, the Chaldeans, and they were under the boot of the Assyrians like everybody else. And so it's like Isaiah made a mistake prophesying against Babylon. They were nothing. It was Assyria that was the threat. Well, he's dealt with Assyria, and uh, we've seen all that, but now he's turning to Babylon. It's no mistake, friends. And it wasn't written after the fact, friends. Not at all. It was written in 725 B.C. or thereabouts. Babylon and the Medes that are mentioned in this chapter are actually uh, small uh, allies chafing under the Assyrian yoke. And Isaiah is predicting the fall of Babylon to the Medes. Look at verse 17. The Medes are specifically mentioned. He, he, he names the people that are going to topple Babylon before either one of them are powerful enough to do anything about it. That would happen 189 years after this oracle was given. Almost 200 years later. Can God do that? Can he make that kind of a specific prophecy that far in advance? Well, we Christians, we know the truth. He actually can look seven and a half centuries ahead and talk about Jesus, who died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Can Isaiah look into the future and see that kind of detail? Absolutely, he can. Can he see that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb and then raised? He can see all that. He can see whatever God shows him, for God knows the future. 
He says in Isaiah 42 and verse 9, Behold, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you, so that you may know that I am He. This is the power of God. He knows the future. He doesn't just know the future. He decrees the future and He declares the future. This is what God does. This is the plan determined for the whole world and God is making it happen. And so Isaiah has a far-reaching vision to look ahead 189 years from where he was at to the fall of, a, of an empire in a city that wasn't even powerful in his day. He can do that. Now Babylon has a symbolic role in redemptive history. Anybody who's read through the Bible, you bump into Babylon again and again. It's not just one time. The key question as we look at Isaiah 13 is, if Babylon wasn't even the issue at this point, if the real threat was Assyria, then why does God give such a prominent place to the prediction of the fall of Babylon? That's a good question. Now, Babylon was the ancient leader in human rebellion, especially among the nations. The nations derived their origin from the time when in Babel a tower was being built. The Tower of Babel in defiance against the command of God. And God came down and confused the languages and that was the beginning of the nations. Babel became Babylon. It's the same location. That, that's where it was. So that's the origination of that uh, national rebellion against God. Babylon also, what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the time under Nebuchadnezzar, was a leader in world uh, empire building. There had never been an empire like it. The cultural level of Babylon was much higher than that of Assyria. It mentions the nobles in our text here. We'll talk more about that. But Nebuchadnezzar's achievements were astounding in building Babylon to its level of, of human glory. You've got the famed hanging gardens of Babylon and all of the structures there. It's just a magnificent place. Furthermore, the city of Babylon was, was mighty and powerful. It seemed invincible. Fourteen miles square. Huge outer walls, 87 feet thick, Herodotus tells us, 350 feet high. That's a 35-story building. A hundred great bronze gates in the walls. An inner and outer moat system. The Euphrates River flowing right under the walls. And just limitless water supply, so they believe. One after the other. Uh, crops able to grow within the walls. You can't conquer this city. You don't have an army big enough to go 14 miles on a side all the way around. Shut it up tight like a cork. You can't do it. And even if you could, they could outlast you. They've got crops inside. They've got farmers. They've got water. They'll, they'll just laugh at you 350 feet above you. And you're not going to be throwing anything over the wall and you're not going to burrow through it. There's no way it could fall, so they believed. Babylon was the arrogant symbol then of opposition to Almighty God. Now, in the New Testament, Peter makes a not-so-obscure reference to Babylon. At the end of his epistle, 1 Peter 5, he says this, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Well, church tradition tells us he wrote that from Rome. Why does he call Rome Babylon? Well, I told you, out of the, out of the ashes rises the phoenix of another world-conquering, God-hating empire. And that was Rome in Peter's day. And even after Rome falls, there's another one, another Babylon that keeps coming. It's going to keep right on going until the end. Re Revelation will pick up on this Babylon theme, as we'll talk about later in the message. But in Revelation 17, as I've already mentioned, and 18, Babylon is there when Jesus returns. And he destroys it. But here in Isaiah 13, we're focusing on the first empire. The Babylonian empire and the city of Babylon. 
and 189 years before it happens, the prophet Isaiah is predicting its fall. By the way, this is one of the most predicted events in history. It's predicted here in Isaiah 13. It's predicted in Isaiah 21. It's predicted for five chapters in Jeremiah, toward the end of Jeremiah, very specifically. It's predicted in Habakkuk, chapter 2, very plainly. The details are astounding. I already preached through it. It's, it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5, the night of Belshazzar's feast, when the writing appears on the wall and Babylon falls to the Medes. It's not a minor event in redemptive history, a major one. And so God here is summoning an army against Babylon. And in this chapter, God's activity is central. Seven times in this chapter, God speaks about what he's going to do against Babylon. He's taking it very personally. He's acting very directly. Look at verse 3. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. It's very personal for God. Verses 11 through 13, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. Verse 17, even very specifically, see, I will stir them, stir up against them the Medes. So God raises up the Medes against Babylon. This is very personal for God. He is active and involved. Verse 6 and verse 9 call it the day of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. The day of judgment on the nations. God is acting directly then to bring about judgment for his own glory. This is not some random swirling of events in human history. It had no purpose. There's no meaning to it at all. Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. No, this is God, the central actor in history, bringing down judgment on a people who will not acknowledge his name or live for his glory. And so, God summons an army. That's how he's going to do it in this case. Verses 2 through 4. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them, to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountain like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. So God's mustering an army. And they're going to come and destroy Babylon. Now, in ancient times, before radio communication, armies used colorful banners up on bare hilltops to signal across distances, or they would use signal fires. And so the nations are massing together. They're organizing to come up against mighty Babylon. Again, no accident. The Lord is mustering this army for war. And they're going to enter, it says, the gates of the nobles. These are the Chaldeans. These are the, re the refined Babylonians who, who exported their Babylonian culture all over their empire. They're the nobles, the blue bloods, cultured and arrogant. They're going to be destroyed, all of them. And God calls this personal army to do his will. They are his warriors. He even calls them my holy ones. Strange, isn't it? Holy can, in this case, mean set apart for a purpose and for a job that God's calling them to do. Now, later on in Isaiah's prophecy, he's going to call Cyrus the Great of Persia, my anointed one. In Greek, it's the, it's the Christ, the Messiah. Now, we know that that's, he's not the Christ, but he's anointed for a task. And so it says on Isaiah 45, 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he's doing Yahweh's will. 
even though he doesn't acknowledge him. We've already learned that in Isaiah, haven't we? God raises up instruments to do his will whether they acknowledge him or not. And so this army that's coming, these Medes and these Persians that are coming to destroy Babylon, they're doing God's will. For this is the day of the Lord. Look at verses 5 and 6. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The invasion of this international coalition of armies against Babylon is not an accidental occurrence. God has brought it. There may be human factors, but it is the Lord spiritually riding at the head of this army. It cannot be defeated. And the reaction will be nothing less than terror. Look at verses 7 through 9. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Now, there will be, there is coming, a future day of the Lord. It's described many places in the Bible, in the New Testament. That day of the Lord will be like this, only a thousand times worse, a thousand times more intense. What God does in history is He, he just does the same things again and again, like dress rehearsals and says, as I did in Sodom and Gomorrah, or as I did at Babylon, or as what happened with the Romans. It's going to happen again at the end. Just getting us ready for the day of the Lord. And thus, Isaiah uses extreme language to describe the fall of Babylon. It goes beyond the mere invasion of the city that night and the killing of the Babylonian king and the officials and the taking over of the city by the Medes and the Persians. It's much further than that. Look at verses 10 and 13. It's, it's language that soars above that current event. It says there, "...the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light." Verse 13, Therefore I'll make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of His burning anger. And so this is, this is language that is speaking of the end of the world. It's going to happen again. Babylon will be crushed again. And at that point, the stars and the sun and the moon aren't merely going to be darkened. They're going to be removed. The stars will fall to the earth, it says in the book of Revelation, as figs from a fig tree. And God is going to clear everything away, and there will be the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, in verse 17, Isaiah names the invaders very specifically. God, this is God saying, see what I can do? Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, and I know history before it even happens. I can tell you who's going to destroy Babylon. It's going to be the Medes. Look at verse 17. Behold, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. This is astonishing accuracy. As I mentioned, at the time Isaiah wrote, the Medes were no major player in the world scene. Like the Babylonians, they were a conquered people under the yoke of the Assyrians. Now, who were the Medes? They were a people living in what is now central Iran, east of Mesopotamia. Inhabited the Zagros Mountains and the high plateaus east of that mountain range. That's where they came from. As early as 836 B.C., the Assyrians referred to them as a threat, as enemies. 612 B.C., they joined together with the Babylonians in helping to crush what was left of the dying Assyrian Empire. Assyria's time was over. And the Medes and the Babylonians came together and went up the Fertile Crescent and crushed Nineveh. It's predicted in Nahum, Assyria is done, finished, for good. 
And the Medes and the Babylonians kind of joined together in doing that. But the Babylonians took over under Nebuchadnezzar. They were stronger at that point, and the Medes were subjugated. They were crushed under the Babylonian Empire. So God declares in advance that once Babylon's time has passed, the Medes will rise up, and it'll be their turn. They're going to crush Babylon. And look at them. They're a single-minded weapon of wrath. Verses 17, 18. Behold, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. First of all, they can't be bought off. You can't send out a box of silver and gold and they go home, go back to where they came from. They're going to get it all. They don't want one box. They want everything you have, Babylonians. So they're not going to be bought off that way. They're ready to exact vengeance. They're filled with wrath. They're filled with rage. And they're going to kill everyone. There's a mercilessness here. Even the infants and the, and the, and the children, they're not spared. Now, the desolation that's decreed and then fulfilled in verse 19 through 22 comes as an act of judgment by God. And why does the judgment come? Well, the central reason is always the same. It's pride. It's the arrogance of the Babylonians. He's going to crush them because of their pride. Look at verse 19. Babylon, it says, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Isaiah 2 has already displayed how much God hates human arrogance and pride, boasting. Anything that goes up, anything that gets lofty, in defiance of God, he wants to throw it down. And in due time, he will. Isaiah 2. Here, Babylon is called the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride. It was for this very reason, as you remember, that Nebuchadnezzar was struck with insanity for seven years. You remember the king of, of Babylon, the, the Babylonian emperor, is walking on the roof of his palace and feeling pretty good about his life and his achievements. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He'd already been warned about this kind of thing a year before that by Daniel. Even while the words are coming out of his mouth, an angel speaks and decrees and God strikes. And that same day, he is driven away from people and goes out and starts eating grass like cattle. For seven years, he's like that, until God grants him repentance, enables his sanity to come back to him, and he lifts up his eyes toward heaven and he praises the Most High and he learns his lesson that those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Well, Nebuchadnezzar learned it. But Babylon didn't. Babylon can't learn it. Babylon's an enemy of God. It will fight against God forever. And so if he won't be that way, he'll be replaced and another king will come along who will rule it. If he's going to get soft... And look at the horror of the judgment, verses 14 through 16. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, each will return to his own people, each will flee to his native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through, all who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be looted, and their wives ravished. It's destruction. This is what the next Babylon does to the last Babylon. This is what they do. And then they're going to get judged when Alexander the Great comes. And then he's going to get judged and the Greeks are going to get judged when the Romans come. And on and on it goes. One Babylon after another. Bringing this kind of destruction. And look at the uh, judgment, the desolation that's predicted. Look at verses 20 through 22. 
speaking of Babylon, she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses, and there the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her stronghold, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. Desolation has been decreed for Babylon. No one will ever live there again. It will be leveled, and it will never be rebuilt. Now, obviously, if you take that literally, then how do you end up with Babylon all the way at the end of the world in Revelation 17? Well, the city itself on the Euphrates River is crushed. And it has not been rebuilt. And according to this, it never will be. But the spirit of Babylon lives on. And it keeps floating from place to place and landing, and coagulating in a human empire, and then the next Babylon rises. The last one will be that of Antichrist, as he organizes the whole world in rebellion against God. And so Babylon continues to live even while this city will never be rebuilt. This was fulfilled, this decree was fulfilled in stages. It didn't happen all at once. Cyrus the Persian invades, 538 BC, he comes in, he takes the whole empire except the city of Babylon. Darius the Mede, he's got to be a Mede of course, comes with the Medes to Babylon itself. And they get in, you remember what happened? Belshazzar's feast. Jeremiah predicted very plainly, I will make her, her officials, her leaders drunk. And they will lie down and sleep and never wake up. It couldn't be plainer. He also says in Jeremiah, I will dry up her strings. And so what ends up happening is they dried up the Euphrates River by diverting it with a canal. They crawl under the walls, very vulnerable to archers if anybody's on the wall watching, but nobody's watching. Because they're all drunk in their beds because of Belshazzar's feast. And so the Medes come in, they open up the gates, and they run through the palace, and they kill Belshazzar, and they kill all of the Babylonian officials. They didn't kill the third highest ruler in the Babylonian kingdom, because that was Daniel. You remember the purple robe and the gold chain? I don't think he was wearing it that night. wouldn't be a good idea. But God then sovereignly raised Daniel up to be the third highest ruler in the Persian kingdom as well. Only God can do something like that. Everybody else, though, dies. Direct fulfillment. But the gates and the walls still stood. It was useful. Why destroy it? And so it was there for a while until another Darius, sometime later, actually pulled the walls down and destroyed it. Then Alexander the Great comes along, and it's by this time little more than a pile of rubble. He decides he wants to rebuild it and make it the center of his empire. Problem is, in Babylon, he drank too much wine and died of alcohol poisoning, and his grandiose plans never came to anything. God will not have that city rebuilt. And it got worse and worse. By 309 B.C., Antigonus I of Macedonia leveled Babylon. By 275, Antiochus I took away all the remaining civilian population, deported them to other cities. Now nobody's even living there at 275 B.C. A Greek writer named Pausanias, geographer of the Roman uh, period, said there's literally nothing where there used to be Babylon. That's during the Roman period. It happened in stages. In the last century before Christ, uh, an ancient geographer, Strabo, wrote, quote, the great city of Babylon has become a wilderness. I don't think he's saying... Oh, I read Isaiah 13. He's just saying what it is. It's a wilderness. God made it that way. The Roman emperor Trajan, eager to visit the famous Babylon, was disappointed when he arrived at the site. Nothing to see. There's nothing there. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will shepherd his flocks there. There's nothing there. 
Now, in the present era, Saddam Hussein, by this time in 1811, an archaeologist had found it. By the end of the 1800s into the 1900s, there were major digs going on. Saddam Hussein took power. He wanted to make it the center of his kingdom. Well, two Gulf Wars took care of him. He's not there in power. There won't be any new Babylon on the site of the old Babylon, at least not under Saddam Hussein. Um, much to the chagrin of the archaeologists that are there, U.S. troops are digging and using sand and rubble from the site to fill sandbags. I think they're fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 13 myself. They're not that concerned about archaeology or any of these sort of things. They've got to fill up sandbags because there are threats. They don't want to get blown up. I just, as a, as a biblical scholar, I look at that and say, Amen. Fill it up. Fill up those sandbags with ancient Babylon. Now, of course, I appreciate archaeology and all that sort of stuff, but it's happened. Whether you liked it or not, if you're an archaeologist who weeps over that kind of thing, it doesn't matter. It has happened. It's going to be hard to get it back. Those guys go on hands and knees with toothbrushes, you know, like that, that kind of thing. These guys are in there with shovels filling up bags. It's God's judgment, I tell you, on ancient Babylon. He means to keep it down. The final judgment, however... Babylon's going to be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what it says. That wasn't like Sodom and Gomorrah. Similar but different. Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown by fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. Judgment coming down from above. Clear that God is doing it. No question about it. And so it will be at the end of the world. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. Revelation 17 and 18 describes Babylon's final fall. Verse 9 through 13, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. That's the end of the world. God is going to judge it. Read about it in the book of, of Revelation. When Babylon the Great, Mystery Babylon... Revelation 17 is thrown down. Thrown down like a millstone, Revelation 18. Destroyed by the sovereign power of God. Now, I was reading an article recently, and some professors were worrying, greatly worrying, terribly worrying, about overpopulation. Overpopulation is going to get us, folks. Did you know that? The, the estimation is that by the year 2050, it will take, these professors say, four planet Earths, the resources of four planet Earths, to handle the nine billion people there will be at that time. I don't think overpopulation is going to get us. Look at verse 12. I will make man scarcer than gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. The judgment of God is going to get us if us is the unrepentant rebels who love Babylon. That's what's going to get us. Don't fear overpopulation. Fear God. Because the judgment of God is coming on Babylon. And, friends, we live in Babylon. We live in the city of destruction. I don't mean just we Americans. I'm saying we who live here on earth. We live in Babylon. And God's judgment is coming. It's going to come once more. And God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rescue us from it. That we might not have to suffer its curses and its plagues. So God says, come out from her and be separate. Speaking of Babylon, later in the book of Isaiah. Come out and do not share her plagues and her judgments. Well, come out where? Recently I was reading through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And we're talking about 
the attributes of God and God's omnipresence. Where are you going to flee from the wrath of God? Where are you going to go? There's nowhere you can hide. One theologian said, There is nowhere to flee from God enraged, but to God reconciled. There's nowhere you can flee from God enraged, but to God reconciled. And the only place you can find reconciliation with God is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood under the wrath of God that we might have a refuge place from the judgment that's coming on Babylon. That we might have a place to come and be separate and to be pure and to be protected and to not suffer the plagues. And so it says in Galatians 1, 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And so what application? Flee to Christ. Flee to him. I don't know your spiritual situation. Do you know your spiritual situation? Have you fled to Christ? Are you standing under the shadow of the cross, having been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Are you ready to face the wrath to come? Have you fled to Jesus? He's the only refuge there is. And you don't need to just flee there once, friends. We still live here. It's still alluring. It's still enticing. It's still pulling on us. We're not done being saved. Flee there every day. Flee there many times a day. Come again and again to the cross of Christ when you're being polluted by the world. It could be you're sitting here this morning, Sunday morning, and your conscience is defiled. You know you're a Christian. There's no doubt in your mind you're a Christian. But you have done things and you have compromised with Babylon in some way and you've been polluted. Flee to Christ again. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that he might purify us. And understand, thirdly, the control of God over the flow of human history. It doesn't matter how many Babylons rise from the ashes of the last Babylon. He is in charge of all of it, and he will crush it all at the end. Smaller days of the Lord, and then one final day of the Lord. And then finally, call on God to fulfill all his good purposes. Say, do it, Lord. Crush Babylon. Rescue your people out from her and crush her. Establish your kingdom. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We come now to a time of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And this is a time in which we're able to look back at what I've just mentioned, Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. We're able to look around at this present time at our own hearts to know whether we're in the faith, to know whether our consciences are defiled. We can confess our sin and get ready. We should not take this in a manner unworthy of the Lord, lest we come under His discipline. We take it very seriously, but remember, it's for sinners. It's not for the pure and holy. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you have come to personal faith in Christ, you've testified to that by water baptism, you're free to come and take from the table. But we also, in the table, look ahead to the time when the Lord will be finished with all of this unpleasantness, with all of the judgment, and he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.